listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. In this series, The Gospel of Luke, Jesus for All, we walk through Luke's account of the life and ministry of Christ. Turn to the book of Luke. Yes, we are back in the book of Luke. Chapter 12 is where we're going to pick up where we left off before our Christmas series. So Luke chapter 12. Just a few reminders to catch us up, and maybe for those um, that weren't with us over the last year and a half as we've been walking through the book of Luke. Again, um, the book of Luke was written, um, Luke 1.4 tells us this, that you may have certainty concerning the things that you have been taught. So as we jump back into the book of Luke and think about the book of Luke, just remember that these things have been written down so you have certainty about your faith. That's the, the idea, and that's what Luke is driving at. Of course, he has a specific audience, but of course, as we read the Bible, it means that it's for us as well. And where we're at in, in the story of Luke, we're following Jesus, of course, and, and we have come to the point where he has set his face to Jerusalem. He's heading towards Jerusalem to um, go to the cross. This is where we've, we're picking up the story here in chapter 12. This is what, what is happening. Um, before Christmas, we walked through Jesus declaring certain woes to these Pharisees and lawyers, these religious folks. And he kind of pointed out their hypocrisy, right? And, and he pointed out their hypocrisy not only in the way they live outwardly out here in the public, but in at home. But he also was looking at something even deeper. He was looking at how they were living outwardly and then compared to the way they were living in their hearts, so this is kind of where we're picking up the story. And I find it really interesting the way God does things sometimes. Um, it's interesting how he weaves things together that like there's no way man could weave them together, you know. It's just so interesting. Jesus knowing that his disciples are going to face persecution you know, after he declared these woes to the Pharisees and the lawyers, he turns to them and he wants to teach them some things. And it's just interesting that last week we kind of unpacked looking forward. We looked at the, the Jonas syndrome and, and we said that the, the thing that, that perpetuates the Jonas syndrome, this idea that the grace has come to you, but you won't take it to somebody else. In other words, it just kind of is, you're like a dam. It just start, stops with you. That you won't go and share the gospel and proclaim the good news to others. That the, the grace that comes to you, it stops with you and it doesn't flow through. And we were calling that the Jonah syndrome because if you know the story of Jonah, um, God told Jonah to go one place and he decided to go another. And then through a series of events in God's sovereignty, he ended up doing what God wanted him to do. But his heart was saying, hey, I don't want these people to be saved. In other words, he received God's grace but would not give it to other ones. And we said the, the main thing that perpetuates that is comfort. Comfort allows us to sit in the Jonah syndrome. So as I'm talking with the elders in December, what should we do after Christmas? There's some topics that we want to hit. Is there some different places we want to go? And they're like, nope, Luke's doing a pretty good job. And absolutely, Luke's doing a great job. Because as we turn to chapter 12 today, Luke is going to speak into the Jonah syndrome. Because I would say that most of us, majority of the time, we go and seek comfort whenever we're fearful. Whenever we have fear, we go and seek comfort. So what Luke is going to do for his disciples and what he's going to do for us 
today is he's going to reorient our fears. He's going to give us some warnings. He's going to give us some comfort. So don't only just hear the warnings, also hear the comforts as we listen to Jesus's words today. He's going to help us with the Jonah syndrome. Because many of us, whenever we're fearful, we go and seek comfort. And God wants you to trust in him and step into those fears because he's there with you as we're going to see today. I would guess if we took a poll and asked for reasons why we fail and being God's ambassadors or agents of reconciliation, fear would probably be close to the top of the list. Some kind of fear, either oh, I don't, I can't do that, or um, I, that's just I can't, I, I don't know enough. They're going to ask me questions I don't know, but fear is right up there as we are called to be His ambassadors and agents of reconciliation. I would guess that that would be the case. And the interesting thing is, in the same way as fear, and this is what brought on the passage that I read in First John for us, the same thing that cures the Jonah syndrome which is love, love for people, or love for others, is the same thing that cures fear, and that is love. God's love. God's great and perfect love casts out all fear. It casts out all our fears. His perfect love casts out fear. Fear is something that we all experience on some level. Every single one of us experiences fear on some level. Fear can be sin, but not all fear is sinful. It can be sin, but not all fear is sinful. Underneath our fears and anxieties are personal desires that are at risk. That's, that's why we fear. We have a, a desire that we feel that is at risk. And that's why I say I think comfort and fear go together there because a lot of the times we turn to comfort, like whenever we're not comfortable, we're fearful or anxious. It's, it's kind of like a circle that works in there and Jesus is going to come and help to reorient our fears today. We are anxious about a job interview because a poor interview jeopardizes our financial future. That's our desire. It's a good desire. It's not a wrong desire. But that's kind of how fear works. We are anxious about the results of a biopsy because cancer can be life-threatening. And there's many ways that you can unpack that. But it is rooted in our desires. Something is threatening our desires so we get anxious or we become fearful. And fears identify what we want, what is important to us, and what we desire. That's what fear shows us. If we're fearful, we can stop and ask the question, okay, what am I desiring right at this moment? Maybe it's a rightful fear, you know, like if... If you step around the corner and, and there's a bear there, then it's rightly to be fear for your life and you turn and run. That's a good thing. But there's many things in life that we, we conjure up in our minds or we think through that we are fearful of because our desires may be not in line with what God has for us or what God desires for us. And we obviously find that in God's word. So what Jesus wants to do today, as I've said a couple of times, is to help us reorient our fears, to help us to be effective ambassadors and agents of reconciliation. So if you look at with me with Luke 12, verses 1 through 3, it says this, in the meantime, when so many thousands of people had gathered together that they were trampling one another, he began to say to his disciples first, 
Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees, which is hypocrisy. Nothing is covered up that will not be revealed or hidden that will not be known. Therefore, whatever you have said in dark shall be heard in the light. What you have whispered in private rooms shall be proclaimed on the housetops. So the warning within this passage is really clear. Beware of the hypocrisy of the Pharisees. Again, I know it's been a gap in between, but just remember, he just went through all these woes in chapter 11. And he was pointing out their hypocrisy, saying, hey, not only do you live one way out here and one way at home, but you live one way out here in a different way in your heart. And Jesus is always trying to get our heart to change, to desire him more. He does that through filling our minds with his word, and then that changes our desires and ultimately changes our actions. We should notice here that the audience has changed. He's no longer kind of speaking not only to the the Pharisees and and the lawyers, not even speaking to the crowds, but he's turned to his disciples. So he's teaching his disciples these things. He uses a very familiar word picture in using the word leaven. The leaven used in ancient Palestine was just a piece of fermented dough that they kept from the previous dough, and and they break it down, and they add it to the the new dough, and and they knead it in, and it works all the way through the dough, so therefore that the dough rises. We use yeast today to do the same thing, and the yeast has to work through the whole dough, or you're going to have parts of it rise and parts of it not rise. So he's giving them this picture, this picture that the hypocrisy of the Pharisees will get into your life and it'll just work and it'll work and it'll work and it'll get into all of your life. The reason why this is a warning is because you cannot hide anything from God. We can't hide anything from God. This hypocrisy, the things that we think that we have in private and keep in private, the things that happen in our hearts and in our minds that, you know, we don't dare tell anybody, not even God. Well, he already knows. And that's what he's trying to make this word picture, that that hypocrisy can get into your life and work all the way through it. But it's a warning because, look, nothing is hidden from God. He knows it all. Whatever you think that, like, I know, and, and probably every one of us, if we're honest, have some things that we just haven't told anybody. Some thoughts that we've had that we just don't tell anybody. Well, God already knows them, and he saved you anyway. That's the beauty of the grace of God. He knows them. He knows your thoughts. He knows your actions. He knows the things that you think nobody knows. He knows them. And he's saying, look, like, this hypocrisy, this Knowledge, it works in your life. But it all comes out in the end. All our secret sins will be revealed. We may be able to cover our tracks for a little while, but we cannot hide our hypocrisy forever. God is omniscient. He knows all things. Ecclesiastes 12, 14 says, For God will bring every deed into judgment with every secret thing, whether good or or evil. There will be full disclosure on the day of judgment. There will be full disclosure for every single one of us on the day of judgment. That's why religion and being good just isn't going to work too good for you. Because there are secret things in your heart, there's sins in your heart that you that you hide 
that you don't tell anybody, you don't even tell God. In that day of judgment, no matter how good you think you are, you're still going to need somebody else's righteousness to stand before a perfect and holy God. You have to have that. Do you have that today? Do you trust him today? There will be full disclosure. It'll come to light. Every proud conceit, every angry word, every lustful fantasy, every thought of self-pity, spin of the truth, and whisper of gossip will be revealed on that day. So I ask you today, what is your secret? And when will it be exposed? And how does that tie to fear? Well, this is the root of much of our fear, is it not? I mean, this goes all the way back to Genesis 3. Genesis 3.10 says, and he said, I heard the sound of you. This is Adam speaking to God. When God says, where are you? He knows all things. Where are you? I heard the sound of you in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. Do you see the wonderful good news of the gospel is that we can come out of hiding? That we no longer have to walk in this fear that, oh, someone might know something. Well, God already knows. And if you're in Christ, he's already forgiven you of those things. So we can boldly step out of this fear of, oh, someone's going to find out. What is someone going to think of me? Which is what he's going to talk about next. Interestingly enough, we can come out of hiding because of the gospel. That's what the gospel does for us. That's what Christ has done for us. But if we do not confess our sins, including the ones that nobody else knows about, then we will live in fear of being discovered. We live and we walk daily. Are we going to be discovered? Is someone going to find out? What is someone going to think? And we live in this fear. The only way to be unafraid and unashamed is to make a full confession, trusting God to forgive our sins through Jesus Christ. Proverbs 28, 13 says, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. And right here you have, right here in, in, in this Proverbs, confess and forsake. That is just repentance. You confess and then you forsake. Forsaking is turning and going the opposite way. Trusting in Christ instead of what you're trusting in in that moment. That is repentance. And repentance eliminates the fear caused by hypocrisy. That we're hiding. That we're living. We have these secrets. Now obviously the warning is just don't start saying, oh, okay, I heard this and this is what God says. Now I'm just going to cut. No, be discerning about it. Confess your sins to God and then confess your sins to your closest people that aren't going to do one of these other sins that I said and go gossip about it. That's not good. But there is freedom to be found in the gospel if we come out of hiding. If we come out of hiding. This is the first way Jesus reorients our fears. The second is showing us we need to fear God more than we need to fear other people. We need to fear God more than, than other people. The remedy for being his ambassador, for being a good ambassador, when I fear God more than I fear other people. Like I am ready to be his ambassador when I fear God more than I fear other people. 
Jesus made the comparison this way in verses 4 and 5. I tell you, my friends, do not fear those who kill the body. And after that, have nothing more that they can do. But I will warn you whom to fear. Fear him who, after he has killed, has authority to cast into hell. Yes, I tell you, fear him. There's a warning. But there's also comfort there, which we will see here in the next couple verses. Jesus is reorienting our fears. Fearing God aligns our life in many ways. And this fear isn't, oh, I'm afraid, but this fear is awe. This fear is reverence for who he is. Proverbs 9.10 says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is insight. Proverbs 10.27 says, The fear of the Lord prolongs life, but the years of the wicked will be short. See, Jesus is clearly drawing a distinction between this life that our bodies will live and then one day we will die and move on, but our souls live forever. He's drawing that distinction. He's saying, do not fear man who could only end this life now, but fear the one in eternity on judgment day that can send you to hell for all eternity. That's who we should fear. And that is a good and right and healthy fear. But we have a natural fear of our bodies being harmed, right? Hebrews even tells us one of the biggest fears in our life is death. It kind of controls us, right? We do so many things to try to stay alive as long as we, have, we can. But the thing is, is we're living forever. We, every single one of us, will live forever. That's what the Bible teaches us. Our soul lives forever, We are afraid of physical pain and shudder at the prospect of death. For the believer, death is only temporary. Therefore, our real concern ought to be what will happen to us in eternity. If we belong to God through faith in Jesus Christ, we know that death will be our entrance in the glory. It is our promotion. When we take our last breath, we get promoted if we are in Christ. And we should be far more excited about that day than living from now until then. Because when that happens, all of this stuff that we deal with every day and day out, living in a fallen world with the flesh that's still fighting against the spirit, will be gone. We have true joy. A never-ending joy. If we should not be afraid of the people who can kill us, then far less should we be fear people who can only scorn us, say bad things about us. Fear prevents us from taking a moral stand at work that might cost our careers. Fear prevents us from challenging our friends when they're going in the wrong spiritual direction. Fear prevents us from talking to strangers about the gospel. But Jesus said we should not even fear people who could put us to death. We should not be afraid of them even. There is only one in right proper fear, and that is the fear of the Lord. When Jesus speaks here about someone who has authority to cast into hell, he is not talking about Satan. He is talking about Almighty God. Hell is not Satan's dominion. Hell is Satan's prison. That's already been determined. God is the one who has authority over heaven and hell. He, we should strike to be like John Knox. 
we should strive to be like John Knox, the man who brought the Reformation to Scotland. Knox never backed down from a challenge, spiritual or otherwise. One commentator said this of Knox. He wielded his sword in battle. He rebuked reigning monarchs. He turned the heart of his nation back to God. At the end, as his body was lowered into the ground, someone at the graveside pronounced Knox's epitaph. Here lies one who feared God so much that he never feared the face of man. Here lies one who feared God so much that he never feared the face of man. Now, as I said before already, the fear of God is not being afraid. It is one of reverence and awe. If we are in Christ Jesus, we should not be afraid that God is out to harm us. So after warning them about hell, about reorienting their fears about who they should fear, whether or not it's, it's man that can only kill you, or if it's God who can eternally put you in hell, he brings comfort. He gives them a reminder. Jesus went on to tell his disciples not to be afraid of God, but to trust in his gracious care. We see that in verses 6 and 7. Are not five sparrows sold for two pennies, and not one of them is forgotten before God? Why, even the hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear not, you are of more value than many sparrows. So here he gives this warning, and then he brings wonderful comfort. By clearly distinguishing between two different kinds of fear, Jesus gave his disciples another basis for Christian courage. Another fight for the... Jonah syndrome. The same God who holds the power of judgment is also the God who knows me and loves me. He knows you and he loves you. Far from getting ready to throw me into hell, he is watching over me to keep me safe forever. Knowing this helps me to be a more courageous Christian. I am able to be his ambassador when I fully trust that God knows me and cares about me. When I fully trust that God knows me and cares about me. Jesus is saying that God values us more than sparrows, but don't miss the point that he also values the sparrows. Not one sparrow is forgotten by God, and neither will you ever be forgotten by God if you are in Christ today. You will never be forgotten, and that should bring great comfort to us. In his care, his love for you, how do we know that? Well, it was displayed. It was displayed on the cross. Romans 8:32 says, "He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things?" He gave his son himself to die for us so that we can be with him forever. Knowing God's love and care for us is a comfort to all our fears. I mean, just think about it. Every time we see a sparrow, which is every day if we slow down enough to notice, we see a creature that is known by God individually. And if his eye is on the sparrow, then we know for sure that he watches over us. He cares for us. He keeps us. 
The God we revere is a God who knows us and loves us. He will be with us in times of trouble. He will provide for our daily needs. He will give us guidance for the future. Rather than holding back, therefore, refusing to take some bold step of faith because secretly we fear that God will let us down, we should have courageous confidence that God is always watching over us. He is always watching over us. As reassuring as it is to know that God will remember us in this lifetime, it is infinitely more important for for us to acknowledge him in the life to come. Right? Like he's, he's saying, like, I'm watching over you today. But more importantly, I just warned you that if you fear man, he can only kill you, but I can throw you in heaven, hell. And then he started out by, the, by saying that, that everything is going to be seen in the day of judgment. So, like, there's a lot of fear things that, that Jesus is trying to communicate here, but there's also so much comfort there. In verses 8 and 9 is that comfort. And I tell you, everyone who acknowledges me before men, the Son of Man also will acknowledge before the angels of God. But the one who denies me before men will be denied before the angels of God. In other words, if you acknowledge him here, he's going to acknowledge you on that day of judgment. He will be there, right there, as your advocate, as your lawyer, saying, yep, Joe did this, yep, Joe did that, yep, Joe did this, but he's under my blood. He's forgiven. Jesus now, again, takes us to final judgment. Hebrews 9.27, Just as it is appointed a man to die once, and after that comes judgment. Here is a healthy fear. You should be more afraid of Christ denying you on judgment day than you should fear what man can do to you today. Because we all have opportunities to proclaim Christ. And many times we, we shriek from that. And we are fearful. And what helps us in that moment is to remember the promise that Jesus gives here. If you profess Christ to men, then Jesus promises to acknowledge you on the day of judgment. When I know that if I stand up for Jesus now, Jesus will stand up for me later. That's great comfort. When I know that if I stand up for Jesus now, Jesus will stand up for me later. When we stand before God for judgment, all of our secrets will be revealed. We will be condemned by the law, condemned by our sins, and condemned by Satan himself. But if we confess Christ, then the very Son of God will rise to our defense. He will testify that we belong to him through faith. He will claim that through his death on the cross... He has taken our shame upon himself and fearlessly paid the full penalty for our sin. He will plead for his father to declare us righteous in his sight. And he will win our case. Because his appeal will be based on God's own justice and mercy. The very justice of God will demand our justification. This ought to lead to some serious self-examination. For each of us. Am I confessing Jesus Christ or am I denying him? 
If I have been denying him, I need to offer full repentance for my sin and make a true confession of my faith. If I do this, God will forgive me. Even if you've denied him, just like Peter denied him, there's forgiveness. And in verse 10, he makes this statement where he says there's forgiveness, but then he gives another warning of a type of forgiveness that we can't overcome. In Luke 12, 10, he says, And everyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but the one who blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven. This is a hard verse to understand. What, what exactly does this mean, this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit? So what he's saying, to speak against the Son of Man is to speak against Jesus Christ without fully understanding who he is or what he has done. So when he's saying that, that you might deny me, but there's still forgiveness, but if you deny the Holy Spirit, there is no forgiveness, let's, let's start with the first part. Right? We have an example of people denying Christ, but yet still forgiving. Not only do we have Peter, but we have this example on the cross. Right, Luke 23, 34, and Jesus said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. So he offered forgiveness for those that were denying Christ, saying he wasn't who he was. But he was still offering forgiveness. So that's there. We can say, okay. There's forgiveness there, but he goes on to say in the same verse that somehow blasphemy against the Holy Spirit must be a different and more serious sin. In fact, he says it will not be forgiven. Now, we find this same statement both in Matthew 12 and Mark 3. This same statement that Jesus says. It's in a little bit of a different context here in Luke than it is in Matthew and in Mark but I, I really think that if we put them all together, we can probably work through this a little bit to try to understand what does he mean. So whenever you look at Matthew 12 and Mark 3, what he is talking about and what they are talking about in this, and actually back in Luke 11, he even goes into it a little bit, the same idea, but he doesn't pull out this blasphemy of the Holy Spirit right then and there. But this idea that Jesus was, was casting out demons and he was performing miracles, and what they did is they, they said, no, you have the, the spirit of Beelzebub, or they're claiming that you are doing this in the power of Satan. So here's God, Jesus, doing, power, doing things through the power of the Holy Spirit, and they are claiming that it comes from Satan instead. And we understand that, and we see that, not because we've thought outside of the Bible, but we can see that Mark gives us a little bit of a commentary on the events of the passage in verse 30 of his commentary. And we see... Mark 3, 28 through 30 says this, Truly I say to you, all sins will be forgiven, the children of men, and whatever blasphemes they utter. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they were saying, and here's where most people think that this is the idea of the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, he has an unclean spirit. So they were saying that, that Jesus was, was possessed by Satan, that, that he was doing these things by the power of Satan. But we know that Jesus is God and he was doing these things by the Holy Spirit. 
So they were trying to say he has an unclean spirit. That's how he can do these things. I mean, if you think back to Pharaoh and you think about Exodus and, you know, to how Moses came and he says, if you do this, that God's going to do this. And then, and then Pharaoh had some sorcerers and they would do certain things, but they couldn't do all the things. Well, they were using the power of Satan to do some of those things. So this is kind of what they were doing with Jesus here. So if we step back and we look historically, here's what um, my studies have come up with. And again, I'm leaning on probably 50 different people that I've read about this. Um, so the historical definition of the blasphemy of the Spirit would go like this. To attribute the Spirit-empowered and anointed work of Jesus to the work of Satan. To attribute the Spirit-empowered and anointed work of Jesus to the work of Satan. They were slandering the Spirit. That's what they were doing. To nuance that historical definition for Luke, it would be something like this. A conscience clear, consistent repudiation of Christ by those who know better. A conscience clear, consistent repudiation of Christ by those who know better. Remember, Jesus just went through the woes, right? He's talking to Pharisees and the lawyers, the ones that knew the Old Testament, the ones that knew all the prophecies that Jesus is going to come, the Messiah is going to come. They knew better, but yet they're denying Jesus. They knew better, but yet they were denying Jesus. So let's just unpack that definition to help us understand a little bit. A conscience, right, that... These Pharisees and lawyers, like I said, they knew what they were doing. They knew that they were denying Christ. They knew it. They knew, you know, that they had the understanding of who he says he is, but obviously their hearts weren't changed. They knew it, so it was a conscious decision to deny. Clear, not a question of doubt or struggle, but an assessment that was good, that good is evil. Right? It's not about, oh, did I blaspheme because I have doubts? No, that's not what, what Jesus is saying. It's, it's that you knew better, that you know, but yet you still deny. Purposely deny. Not to struggle, right? It's clear it's not a struggle, but it's a clear, conscious act. Consistent, not a mistake or lapse in judgment, not a sin that they are in for a time but will repent of. They are dead set against Christ. Just dead set against Christ. Repudiation is reject with disapproval and condemnation. Denying Christ's work comes from God. That's what they're doing, the repudiation part of it. They reject the disapproval disapproval and condemnation of Christ. Unforgivable because those who commit the sin never come to Christ for forgiveness. They never come to Christ for forgiveness. That's why it's can't be forgiven because they don't go to the one that can forgive them. The sin is not so much a particular act or a mere declaration as it is a disposition of the will. It's not like, whoops, I did something. No, it's a purposeful disposition of the will. Which brings us to you sitting in the pew or someone you may be witnessing to. Should you fear that you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit? I can say this, and practically every person I read this week said the same thing. 
If you are worried that you have blasphemed the Holy Spirit, you probably have not. Because you would not worry about it whatsoever. Because your disposition, your desire is dead set against God and Christ. The very fact that you have a sensitive conscience that you would wonder that you would have a concern and care for Christ is an indication that you do not have the type of disposition of this type of will. You're not willfully pushing against Christ. The blood of Christ is sufficient for any sinner who truly repents, even a sinner who on occasion has denied the name of Christ. But if instead of believing the gospel, a sinner stubbornly persists in repudiating Jesus and even calling him the devil, how can he be forgiven? Rather than committing unforgivable blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, Jesus calls us to believe the witness of the Holy Spirit and to rely on his assistance whenever we speak for Christ. This is the final reorientation of fear we will look at today. I am ready to take a strong stand for Christ when I trust the Holy Spirit to help me in my witness. It's trusting in him. That he will help you in that moment. Jesus does not expect us to overcome our fear on our own. He gives us the Spirit to help us. He gives us the Word to help us. He gives us the church to help us. We do this with the Spirit's help. And this is verses 11 and 12. When they bring you before the synagogue and the rulers and authorities, do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. Jesus was preparing his disciples for persecution. In coming days, they would be dragged before various religious and and political authorities, both Jewish and Gentile, and they would be forced to defend their faith. We see this all through the book of Acts. We can trust the Holy Spirit when we witness for Christ. How can we overcome this sinful fear and become bolder in our evangelism? Part of the answer is to be able to give a simple gospel presentation and able to tell others the reason that we have the hope that dwells inside of us. That's 1 Peter. But sometimes there is no time to prepare. So we should trust the Spirit to help us. It's not about our ability to persuade. It is about the truth of the gospel that changes hearts. And then praying for the Holy Spirit to do the work. This is how we defeat the Jonah Syndrome. It is defeated by freely confessing our sins. Fearing God more than we fear other people. Trusting the watchful care of the Father. Knowing that Jesus will defend us at the final judgment. And depending on the help of the Holy Spirit. Will you trust in him today and walk by the Spirit and go and be his ambassadors as he reorients our fears so we can be comforted by his word and all that he has done for us? Will you walk in that today? Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word, Lord. We thank you that Jesus is teaching us and showing us, not only warning us of fears, but also giving us comfort. You are a good and gracious and loving Father. You care deeply for us. You sent your Son to die for us. 
Lord, I pray today if there's one here who does not know you, Lord, I pray that they would come out of hiding. Lord, that you would send your spirit to change their hearts so they can freely confess their sin to you and then trust fully in Christ. Lord, for those of us that have heard today about the fears that may resonate, not 24-7, but we go in and out of them. Have we recently denied Christ? Have we failed to proclaim the gospel? Do we need to come out of hiding and, and repent? For all of us who've been walking with the Lord, will we be reminded that Christ died for us, that he loves us, There is no more shame. There is no more guilt. That has been taken by Christ, as we will be reminded when we take communion. Lord, I ask that you will help us in all these areas today through the power of your Spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the weekly sermon podcast from Mountain City Church. To learn more about our church, visit our website at mountaincty.church. Thanks again, and may the Lord bless your week.